Today, I want to talk to you about what everybody's thinking about uh, in America, because it's Sunday. Everybody's thinking about sermons, right? Well, probably not quite, because everybody's got on their minds what? That there's a big ball game today. And it's amazing that, you know, we can get 100 million people to watch a football game, but we can't get them to do anything else sometimes. But I thank you for being here. And I want to talk to you about a sermon because, first of all, we preachers, we try. And we're not always successful in, in giving a good sermon. I recognize that. There's some days I walk to my car with my head down. I could have done a lot better. I try to articulate. I try to be succinct. I try to be clear. I try to give you a message. And I just hope that you'll understand it. Some days I don't even understand it. But we try. And sometimes sermons aren't even appreciated. We'll just put it that way. And sometimes, yes, it's the preacher's fault for doing that. But I try my best. I think about my sermon all week long. You can ask my wife. She'll be looking at me. What are you thinking about, honey? It's the sermon. So I'm, I'm trying. But sermons aren't always appreciated. And sometimes it is the preacher's fault. Billy Graham used to tell a story about a preacher who was introduced. And he started preaching. 20 minutes go by. 40 minutes go by. 60 minutes go by. Now he's preaching up to about an hour and a half. Everybody's looking quite tired. And the guy that introduced him just so happened to have a gavel. And he throws the gavel at the preacher to try to get him to quit. And it misses the preacher and it hits somebody right on the front pew and hits him right in the head and he kind of gets out of his stupor and he says, hit me again, I still hear him. <laughs> So hopefully a gavel won't be needed this morning. Sometimes long sermons happen, but I try not to. But preachers are charged to preach the Word, to bring the Word, because in this world there are a lot of things that I can tell you, but I'm here to give you something that is eternal in character. Paul said, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the living, preach the word, be instant in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. In other words, Paul said it, no matter what, I want you to keep preaching the Word because people want to hear what they want to hear. And there's always going to be that element to the world. There's always going to be those distractions. There's always going to be that misinformation. But he says, stay true to the Word of God. And no matter how good or bad my sermon may be, if I root it in God's Word then tonight I'll be able to sleep. And so I want us to take a look into a sermon that Jesus preached. 
in his ministry. And it's in Luke chapter 4. And if you really want to think about it, this is kind of the mission statement of Jesus. And I love this passage. It's, it's, it's the heart of the New Testament. It's the heart of Jesus' ministry. If you want to know who Jesus is, if you want to know why He came to earth, if you want to know what His preaching was about, look at this passage, and you'll find it very quickly. And the first, it begins in verse 14 to show His success as a minister, as a teacher. And He's having success. Listen to it. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And news of Him went out through all the surrounding region. And He talked in their synagogues, being glorified by all. He was getting response. People were listening. People were understanding. And then what happens is very interesting. Jesus has been out in Galilee, and now He comes home to preach. He comes to His home synagogue, His home church where He was raised up to preach, to teach. And this is what happens to Him. What's interesting about the word Nazareth is that it actually means branch. And one of the prophecies that we have of Jesus in Isaiah way back, 800 years before Jesus says this, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of His roots. Speaking of Jesus' lineage, it prophesied that through the lineage of Jesse, a branch would come. And here we find Jesus in Nazareth, branch, preaching the gospel. We can't forget what Nathaniel thought when he was first introduced to Jesus. And he came to Jesus and he said, has anything ever come out of Nazareth that was good? So the people of the time really didn't have a great esteem for the town itself. Nazareth wasn't like a highfalutin place to be, evidently. And in fact, there's been some naysayers in modern times who said, we don't even know if it really exists. Did Nazareth ever really exist? And there were, there's some naysayers out there saying, well, we don't even know if it really exists. But then lo and behold, in the last 10 years, guess what they found? They found a first century house right in the middle of Nazareth. And here's what archaeologists say. The dwelling and older discoveries of nearby tombs and burial caves suggest that Nazareth was an out-of-the-way hamlet of around 50 houses on a patch of about four acres populated by Jews of modest means. That's Jesus. And Jesus has come to His little home synagogue to preach. Think about hometown heroes. Jesus is experiencing success. He's well known. People know who He is all around in the regions. You know any hometown heroes? I remember my small town, we had a, a hometown hero. His name was Popeye Jones. And he was a basketball player. He was about 6'8". And when Popeye Jones played basketball and baseball, he led us to the state tournament in both sports. And let me tell you, the way that our town treated Popeye Jones, while well, he was leading the parade. We respected Popeye Jones. When I saw Popeye Jones, I, of course, looked up to him. 
But he had all the respect of everybody in town. He was respected. He was admired. He was applauded. We also had a governor from my town when I was a little boy, Ned Ray McWhorter. And I tell you, he was respected. I remember seeing his Cherokee drive across town, his Wagoneer. And we go run up. He let us come into his yard, and everybody respected Ned Ray. That's not quite the reception that Jesus receives in his home synagogue, which we'll get to. It says in verse 16, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. Generally speaking, a, a boy would join the synagogue at about five years of age. And it says, as his custom was, it was his custom to assemble with those around him, to come to the synagogue, to read Scripture, to worship And he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, a prophecy. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written and it said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because it has anointed me. This speaks of who Jesus is. This speaks of His miracles. The Spirit was upon Jesus' ministry. And ultimately, this is God's approval. It's God commending Jesus' ministry. And the way that we know who Jesus is is because Jesus could do things that I can't do. Jesus lived in such a way that He worked many miracles and many signs. It says in Acts chapter 2 that Jesus Christ, a man approved of God among you by miracles, wonders, and signs. Remember when he came to the rabbi in John chapter 3, the rabbi said to him, no one could work these works unless God had sent them. The Samaritan woman said, I perceive that you are a prophet Because Jesus' ministry had the approval of God because of the miracles and wonders and signs in which He did. And His life is unparalleled with those miracles and signs. And ultimately, it points to who He is. Anointed means Messiah. So when Jesus said here, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me, He's telling His hometown that He is the anticipated Messiah, the Anointed One, the One in which they are anticipating, the One they are waiting on. He is identifying Himself as King. He is identifying Himself as priest and as prophet. And we as Christians have received an anointing through the Holy Spirit. But it says this, He has anointed me, what? To preach the Gospel. To preach the gospel. And his purpose was to tell the good news. And when we look into our world, we're inundated by what? By bad news. Every day, it seems like we can turn on the TV or look in the newspaper, and what do we get? Bad news. But when we find good news, do we celebrate it? Do we tell it? Are we enthusiastic about it? Probably some of you may know Brother Steve has gotten a new car. You know how I know that? Because it's good news, isn't it, Steve? And he has not been shy about telling that good news. 
And the same is true with the gospel. That we can't be shy with sharing the good news because what the gospel tells us is, number one, God is powerful. And we need that power in this world to change that negative news. That there is something above all this. That there is something beyond all this. That there is someone we are obligated to morally and so on. The gospel also tells us that not only is God powerful, but that people can change. People can change. You wouldn't know it by how we live, but people have the power to change when God transforms them. And that's what the Bible says, that the the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And that there is goodness, there is love, there is truth. He has anointed me to do what? To preach the good news. There is good news in this dying world. There is good news in this evil world. There is good news in this divided world. What's interesting is who's Jesus' audience? Who does Jesus want in His church? He has anointed me to preach the gospel To the powerful, it's not there. To the rich, it's not there. Of course, salvation is for all people, but Jesus says He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Jesus came for the poor. And our first idea of poor is the poverty of the body, isn't it? And there's no doubt that Jesus spent His time not with the powerful, not with the rich, not with the religious even, but with the poor. His brother James said it like this in chapter 2, 5, Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? Jesus came for the poor. Not only is there the poverty of the body, but most sadly, there's the poverty of the soul. And ultimately, that's why Jesus came. It's because there are some people in this world that that's all they got is riches. You hear me? That that's all they have is riches. Nothing else. They don't know love. They don't know hope. They don't know peace. All they got is money. And the only thing that I can say to my wife sometimes is, we got everything but money. But Christ came to preach to who? The poor. So who are we to preach to? Who are we to minister to? Are we really trying to win friends and influence people? Or are we trying to help the poor? That's the mission of the church. That's the mission statement of Jesus He also says this, He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Sometimes that's the worst affliction, isn't it? Being wounded of the heart. And I've made the comment many times here that in my time of being a chaplain at a hospital, that I've seen people suffer from many things. I've seen people anguish and languish in pain in their hospital beds, and it's such a sad situation when you see them hurt more 
inside of them spiritually than what they're feel, feeling physically. And there's not a drug on the nurse's cart that takes care of that. There's not a drug for loneliness. There's not a drug for guilt. There's not a drug for shame. But Jesus says, I have come to heal the brokenhearted. The psalmist of old says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those as such that have a contrite heart. If your heart has ever been broken, then Jesus is here for you. If you feel poverty in your body or in your soul, Jesus has come here for you. It also says this, He has anointed me to preach the gospel and to preach deliverance to the captive. Deliverance. I don't know if you've ever had any experience with addiction or with vice or vanity or insecurity. But sometimes our sin takes hold of our lives, doesn't it? It says that he that commits sin is the slave of sin. And sometimes our lives become uncontrollable, that we become controlled by something else. I was thinking about addiction this morning. And what addiction does to you is really it makes you only feel two things. Either you're feeling the desire, the hurt for that which you are addicted to, or you have what you're addicted to. And so you miss out on all the myriad of feelings and things that you can experience because you only know two feelings. You either know, I don't have what I need, or I have it. But Jesus says, I have come to deliver you, the captive Sometimes we feel powerless, but God says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Doesn't that sound better than being addicted? The only reason I speak in such a way about it is because I know it. He also says, Recovery of the sight to the blind. And there is blindness, isn't there? Physical blindness. But what's even worse than physical blindness is spiritual blindness. When someone can't perceive that there is a God. When it's written in the heavens, when the heavens declare the glory of God, when we can see the design and the beauty of creation, when we see written within our hearts the conscience and the good and evil, and we can't see God. There's a spiritual blindness and it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's a spiritual blindness. There's also ignorance that is blindness. Christ's teaching is a living our lives in a deeper awareness of truth, of meaning, of possibility. To deny Jesus' teachings is to deny goodness in our lives. How many of us want everybody to not be able to do math? Or to not be able to read? We recognize those things as good for us, knowledge as good for us. And in the same way, the moral teachings of Christ change us and better us. We need to know them. And there's wisdom in the teachings of Christ. It says 
In Isaiah 11, 2, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him, speaking of Christ. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Not only does He give recovery of a sight, it says to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So not only does He deliver us from bondage, but He gives us liberty, freedom, as a result. Liberty, freedom, and inheritance. And He says to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, speaking of Jubilee. And Jubilee was a time of restoration of family property. In Leviticus 25, it says this, Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere. On the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family's property and to your own clan. And so property that was sold, property that was lost, was restored in the 50th year. And Jesus is saying, restoration has come. Your inheritance has come. But I want you to look at verses 20 and 21. Jesus proclaims this passage and look what happens. And He closed the book and He gave it back to the attendant and He sat down and the eyes of all were in the synagogue were fixed on Him. What's He going to say next? And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, we have a decision to make that we need to let this passage be fulfilled not just in our hearing, but in our doing. That we should be the church the church that Jesus brought to this world that preaches good news to the poor, that sends to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captive, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. What's interesting about this passage is that ultimately Jesus doesn't get the standing ovation. In fact, they say after he speaks these words, is this not Joseph's son? And eventually they take him up on the hill in Nazareth and they try to throw him off of it and kill him. The altar call doesn't work in Nazareth. He's not received in his own country, in his own town. Jesus begins to be rejected in his own church, in his own synagogue. What does that tell you about us? Number one, it tells us that a lot of times what we're looking for is right in front of us. Amen. Has that ever happened? Amen. That right, what you're looking for is right in front of you. Sometimes my wife gets on to me. <laughs> because I go looking for something in the house. And I go looking in the pantry. And she says, if I find it, I'm going to be a little upset with you. And of course she finds it and it was right there in front of me. But sometimes it's right in front of us and we miss it. And here the people were looking for this opportunity. They were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for a Savior. And He was standing right before them and they can't even understand it. They can't even accept it. 
And God blesses you with opportunities and blessings and people to help and relationships that matter. And sometimes they're right in front of us. And we reject it. It also shows that God works through the humble. God works through the unsuspected. God is working now and He's wanting to work through you. Not because you've got it all figured out. Not because you're rich. Not because you're powerful. But because you're His. So Nazareth took their own for granted. And sometimes we find discouragement in the places we hope to find it. I wish I could go back to Nazareth and tell them who they were missing out on. But here you would think that if Jesus returned to His hometown, to His home synagogue, that they would encourage Him. But they reject Him. And sometimes in our lives where we hope to find encouragement, we don't get it. We hope to find it with someone, a friend or a spouse or someone that we can trust, but sometimes it's not always there. But we have to continue on. And even though Jesus is rejected... He continues to preach. It also shows us that there is a purpose in the death of Christ. Because the people try to seize Him and try to kill Him, and it says that He passes through them. And we know that there can be meaning in death, don't we? When someone defends someone, when someone saves someone, when a fireman rushes into a burning house, and they perish by saving a child's life, we say that that death had meaning, don't we? That death had purpose. When we see someone do something altruistic and jump in front of a bullet for someone, we say that death had meaning. And in the same way, the Gospels are telling us that Jesus was going to die, but His death was going to be in the time in which it was appointed and with the purpose in which it was appointed. And ultimately, His death wasn't an accident. There was a purpose to it. He died for you. He died for me. He died as a sacrifice for each of us. Jesus of Nazareth, Today, I hope you will consider His words and fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah in this church by seeking to preach the good news to the poor, by seeking to give sight to the blind, by seeking to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's the work of this church. And let it be fulfilled today by what we do outside of this building. When you leave this place, bless someone. Don't take it for granted. The Bible says that if we follow Christ, then we follow Him homeward. That when we follow Him, we find God. We begin to intimate ourselves with God. So today I invite you to begin that process of following Christ. And the beautiful thing is, is that you can begin right where you are. Jesus says, follow me. And you can begin right where you are, not with everything figured out, but beginning by following Him right where you are in your life, seeking Him, praying to Him, yearning for Him. It begins in faith. It begins by seeing Him differently 
than the way that we see other people because He did perform these miracles. He did teach these truths. We recognize that within our own lives and within our own nature that we find things that aren't right. I find sin in my own life and I need to turn from that sin and turn to Him. I need forgiveness. And I confess Him for being the Son of God. And I'm baptized, immersed into His body, the church, where I receive forgiveness of sins and where I find that I'm in Christ. Or today, if you need encouragement, you need prayers of encouragement, prayers of healing, then know this church is here to stand with you. If you have any need, we're going to sing this next song to encourage you. So won't you come now as together we stand and as we sing.